Hello! I know I'm interrupting, but before this podcast, 3CR has an important public service announcement. Currently, we are running our annual Radiothon, where we ask for your donations to keep community broadcasting alive. We rely on your support to keep media alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, I hope you enjoy your show. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Yes, good morning. G'day, Rebecca, how are you? The first day of winter, I'm surviving. Yes, that's right, white rabbits. (laughs) <laughs> right, rabbits. Oh, sorry, I don't understand that. That's supposed Reference. to be a little, a little bit of a, a personal luck. You, if you don't, if you say it before you've spe- spoken to anybody else, ah. apparently, it, you know, it's, it's all fool's tales. Yes, but of course, I spoke to the tram driver this morning. I said hello because I was the only only one on the yeah. tram. <laughs> so I, I blew my luck for June. Oh no! Oh no! Never mind. So what have we got today? Oh, what have we got? We've got quite a few things. I went to a thing a while ago. The um, a the Australian Unemployed Workers Union have been uh, running a series of talks. Yeah, uh, they've been doing advocacy training. They've been yeah. doing a whole range of I've stuff. I've seen that on yeah, Facebook. That's yeah. right. And they've just had their first batch of people. Uh, the um, they're at the National Union of Workers uh, offices and those people have just been uh, blessed with the uh, um, advocate um, training. training. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but uh, also they've been running a series of talks and uh, Rob Watts, who's a uh, lecturer at uh, RMIT, gave a very interesting talk around uh, the development of the concept of the uh, deserving and the undeserving poor. So he was giving a historical of uh, uh, unemployment uh, uh, concepts within the Australian context. Uh, He then went on to solutions, but we may only have time to listen to his uh, roundup of the system as we know it first off uh, this morning. And you are going to talk to someone about uh, what's going on in West Palpua. Yeah, yeah. Uh, One of my friends, Peter Arndt, uh, yeah, he frequently goes over there and uh, recently also went over to a conference in... uh, in Germany to talk to other, uh, well, some West Papuan people were able to come over um, from inside and and speak at that conference, Uh, but also other solidarity groups from around the world come together. Um, Yeah, so he's going to just give us an update about that. Yep. And uh, hopefully Marcus is going to turn up and we're going to have a word with the shearing shearing union a, a, a person who's from the Shearers Union, which will be quite a fascinating insight yeah. into the world of a person who lives in country, rural Australia. Yep. 
And uh, later on, uh, as I promised, we're going to have the more informal conversation that I had with Don Sutherland about uh, the issues that came out of the uh, just past federal election. So uh, let's have a message first because we've got to remind people that the Radiothon is coming. It's even starting this week. This week, yeah. yeah. If yeah. you're if you're listening to the language programs, don't yep. forget to throw in, in some yeah in yep. the evenings, and then the general programming starts. Uh, ours will be on the fifteenth, and we're expecting that uh, we're going to open up the lines. We're going to have yes. half an hour at least of talkback. So uh, get your dialing fingers. Uh, we're going to resurrect a uh, historical. Segment. Uh, segment yes. on Solidarity Breakfast. So uh, let's... Uh, yeah, and make sure you ring in and tell us how how much you love us. Yeah. <laughs> All revolutions... No, wrong one. Oh, is it? Turn it off. Turn it off immediately. Sorry. Oh, that's Don. Yeah. Yes, sorry about that. There oh. go. Oh, there. We're living in very dark times. For the better part of the last four decades, we have seen a neoliberal makeover, engineered by successive governments since the Hawke-Keating governments began in March 1983. David Harvey succinctly sums up what a neoliberal makeover looks like. It's a political project that pretends to be something other than a political project. It's based on a theory of economic practice that uh, says human well-being can be best advanced if we hand everything over to a market-type process, uh, in which we also then protect individual property rights or corporate property rights, free markets and ideas like free trade. None of this is actually what's going to happen, but that's the story that you're going to tell. The role of the state is then redefined to uh, be uh, an idea about creating and preserving a framework for these kinds of practices. Now, as Marcus Banks and his colleague Diana Bowman have pointed out, what we've seen actually happen in Australia is the use of state frameworks of policy, regulation, intervention, all the rest of it, to create a a neoliberal social insecurity state. It's not a security state, it's an insecurity state where you you render insecurity an endemic feature of large numbers of ordinary Australians' lives. And this is represented in various ways as educational policy, social policy, industry policy, blah, blah. What you get, and we've now seen, uh, and it begins precisely under the Hawke-Keating government, is a combination of precarious employment, that is the return to precariousness, because that used to be the old norm until the 1940s, something Guy guy Standing seems to have some trouble understanding. Um, It's also about uh, the creation of uh, a system in which low and inconsistent wages becomes increasingly normative, in which you see, and I'll be paying most attention to this proposition, we see an increasingly conditional and punitive system of welfare payments, if you can call them welfare payments, accompanying relentless increases to the cost of living that end up making life emotionally, economically, financially insecure and stressful for many Australians, not just those at the bottom end of the income pile. It's no thing to be uh, proud of that we now have uh, the third largest proportion 
of part-time workers in the OECD, the big 32 capitalist countries, just behind Netherlands and Switzerland. About 40% of employment now in this country is non-standard. That is, it's no longer whatever it used to be when we had an effective, if flawed, industrial relations system. So that's the first big point. That's the context. And the current system, if you want to call it that, of social insecurity for people of working age, that's uh, 15 to 64 is my focus here. My main claim for tonight is simple. The current system of social insecurity is not working. For example, the average duration of unemployment benefits now is running in excess of five years. So we're not talking about short-term unemployment, we're talking about long-term endemic unemployment. We've also seen the punitiveness quotient increase dramatically. And it's a striking fact that you should take home and spread around whenever you meet people. That in 2017, in the second half, that is from June to December 2017, there are 827,000 recipients of UB and there are 800,000 suspensions. And we call ourselves a civilised society. It is just beyond belief. And this is not something that people understand or, or, or appreciate or acknowledge in this country. I wanted to put some of this into a political, historical context first and then talk to what we might be doing to, to make things a bit better. When Australia, as a white colonial space, was created, uh, we brought into this space um, some long-standing ideas about the benefits of work and the criminal and deviant status of people who didn't work. They were called paupers. And, and the English or British, mostly it's English history, was a long-term history uh, which arcs back to the Elizabethan period in the late 15th, 16th century, when a system of poor law relief began to be constructed both locally and at the central level in London. That system creates a fundamental idea. There are people who are worthy and there are people who are not. Those who are not are to be punished. Those who are worthy will get something, provided they keep on being worthy, which is to say socially obedient. We're talking about a network of charitable, philanthropic and church-based activities. Again, it's a matter of some record that the chief source of unemployment relief, for example, in a state or colony like Victoria, was a network of ladies' benevolent societies. There was one of those in every suburb, and they were what they sound like. They were committees run by ladies uh, who would hand out, effectively, uh, various kinds of uh, food and clothing relief. They did not like to hand out money, and it is this system which headed straight into the crisis that began in the 1920s, not in 29, but probably in the mid-20s in, in places like Melbourne and Sydney, when rising uh, unemployment began to manifest itself for the first time in a serious way in four or five decades. That system of ladies' benevolent societies was the primary response to mass unemployment. And uh, those of you who know the history will know that in suburbs like South Melbourne, Collingwood, Richmond, Fitzroy, the unemployment rate was running at 90%. 90%. And the rates at which people were being evicted was running in the order of five to 600 in each week of houses in which police would move people on and out. My own parents remember being moved in Footscray, moving out, I think, once every two months. They'd scrape together a bit of rental, move into the house and do the midnight flit the day before the, the, the guillotine dropped uh, uh, and would then move to another place. That was what people did. 
back then, in the day, as we might say. The moral economy, in short, of the distinction between the deserving and the undeserving was not accompanied by the institutional mechanisms which were created in Britain over the two to three hundred years of what we'll call the Industrial Revolution. We did not create a poor law system. There was legislative uh, enactments that required local governments from the onset here in Victoria, for example, from the 1850s to set up poor law mechanisms, but they never did it. They just refused. They wouldn't have a bar of it. So it was left to charity, church groups and so on to provide whatever was to become the um, unemployment relief that was to be available. The exception to that story is the odd, and uh, I'm not sure how you want to characterise Queensland. Uh, Queensland did, in 1919, introduce a system of unemployment insurance. Uh, and, of course, uh, it worked somewhat in the 1920s, particularly in outback Queensland, to, to provide unemployed workers with some minimal system of relief. But because of the design problems with unemployment insurance, it was never going to be all that effective anyway. The second point to be made is that, uh, and you can't emphasise this enough, Australia is an odd society when it comes to the provision of welfare. We are the one society on earth which decided not to set up an unemployment insurance system. We are exceptional. We are so exceptional as to... And the word unique here does actually mean what it means. We're the only society that's done it this way. That is to say, unemployment insurance is a... What it sounds like, it's a scheme in which workers contribute from their income, their wage income, to a fund, such that when they become unemployed, they can draw on that fund as of right. That was the scheme, the logic that was set up first of all, under Bismarck in Germany in the 1880s. And it would be the model that would be adopted everywhere else around the world. Australia chose not to do that. What we set up, and it was set up initially in the context of the Second World War, was a scheme based on taxation. There was no expectation that employers would contribute to this, nor that the government would contribute to this. It was to be funded by general taxation that was imposed for the very first time in 1942, on all Australians. Now, again, you need to remember that taxation was not something that most Australians paid until 1942. And it was in the context of a, a dramatic crisis uh, uh, that was occasioned by the eruption of war with Japan. So the origins of what we would see as emerge as a scheme of national social security have their origins in a total war setting a great deal of concern about how we would get through the war, the decision to create a taxation system, and the, to put it in as simple terms as one can, a, a scheme was created of unemployment benefits, sickness benefits, uh, what we'd call sort of uh, widow's benefits and all the other sorts of benefits that become part of we, what we now would learn to call the Australian welfare state in the, in the period 41, 42, 43, 44, was basically designed to make the imposition of taxes palatable. It was not done because of any flush of um, generosity or a sense of social justice. It was a crude economic project in which the key economists, most of them Keynesians, who were becoming part of the new dispensation in economic policy, decided that they needed to, to make the imposition of taxes palatable to people who had never been asked to pay them in the past. That is, working-class people with the impost of taxes reaching right down to the bottom income uh, uh, groups. 
in this country. As you know, that coincided with a, a very important decision. The scarifying effects of the uh, Great Depression were such that there was a general determination never to allow the impact of mass unemployment to occur again. So by 1944, again with the uh, advice of key economists and international uh, agreements that were emerging on the part of the Allies, the Australian government embraced a formal commitment to full employment. It issued a white paper, a white paper on full employment. America would pass legislation to that effect, 1946. The British government, Canadian, the New Zealanders would all formally embrace a commitment to full employment in which the relevant nation state undertook to provide all of the economic policies that would secure full, and let's just put the word in brackets, male employment. And that would be the core accomplishment of the war period. And so when Reconstruction begins in 1945, um, we have Australian government formally committed. And it's a bipartisan commitment so that even the Menzies Liberal Party, as it's newly, newly created at that point, is committed to a project of policy, economic regulation, uh, a whole raft of policies which would include uh, interest rates set by the National Bank, the uh, Reserve Bank, Commonwealth Bank, um, immigration would be part of the story, <coughs> investment in industry, uh, a network of uh, employment services would be created, the Commonwealth Employment Service, and all the rest of it was created with a view to um, securing the conditions of full employment as a real uh, project for the, for the post-war period. As we know, um, that project would last precisely almost three decades. The 3CR Radiothon is fast approaching. And this year, we're asking you to power Radical Radio. That's right. It's with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon 2019. June the 3rd to the 16th. Power Radical Radio. You're on 3CR with Annie and Rebecca and on the line we've got... Peter. Good morning, Pete. How are you going? Good. How are you this morning? Oh, enjoying this cold Melbourne morning. Yes. Uh, and uh, can you tell us, um, you went recently over to, to Germany for the ICP conference. Can you tell us a bit about that and why, what, why, how is that relevant to West Papua? What's ICP? Yeah, what is it? International Coalition for West Papua, which is sort of like a network of NGO and church groups that have an interest in West Papua. Um, many of the organisations um, work with Papuans, um, fund particular projects and so on. Uh, and ICP co-hosted a conference on Indonesia after the elections with Amnesty International, 
and Human Rights Watch um, and, and looked at some of the human rights um, concerns around Indonesia and also a lot around West Papua. Yeah, and there were some uh, Papuans from inside that were able to come over and what did they have to say? Uh, I sp- yeah, they um, talked a lot about um, the fundamental abuses of human rights and, and there were different perspectives, but I think... Um, very much so, expressing concerns about ongoing um, violence of Indonesian security forces against Papuans, both those who are politically active, struggling for uh, freedom and independence, but also the general citizenry, Um, but also, I think... Um, wanting to press a strong message about the right of Papuans as the First Nations peoples of of the land to um, push for self-determination. And even coming from churches and not just the political activists, I, I was deeply touched by... Um, uh, one of the woman, women who is a minister and leading light in one of the Papuan churches reading out um, a message from four Papuan church leaders um, that was delivered to a delegation of 27 um, Europeans and Pacific Islanders and some Indonesians from the World Council of Churches in February, and there's a strong message there, uh, among other things, to talk about the right of um, the people of West Papua to self-determination. So, Peter, the um, increase in violence, I mean, the whole thing is violent, but the actual increase in violence in ordinary West Papuans' lives is part, do you think, of uh, the... uh, Compasses uh, hold economic hold on West Papua and their desire for a particular trajectory in that exploitation. Uh, well, the violence, the violence is is definitely um, something that springs forth from not just Compasses but every. Um, military unit and every police and intelligence unit um, in West Papua, I think. Oh, so you mean it's a general, the, the, it's a green light uh, towards um, being uh, thugs towards the local population? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, all the security forces. They're allowed. Not just particular military, one particular military unit, all of them. Are, are operating in West Papua uh, and violence, physical violence is one of the, the means that they use to repress uh, the people of Papua and to marginalise them. All of them are involved and I think 
well, from my observation, they operate as a law unto themselves, even outside um, Indonesian law. And I think uh, President Jokowi himself realises that the military and the police operate um, in a way that doesn't even respect his authority. They, they've turned it into West Papua into a place that they manage and control uh, for their own purposes um, and also for the Indonesian Republic, but very much for their own purposes. And um, what, what do you mean the, their own purposes? That well, they they they, they benefit e- mm. economically. Yeah. So, this is East Timor all over again. Mm. Yeah, they're involved in the various in in economic enterprises, uh, and and certainly I remember a couple of years ago when I went, um, people ex- in the Highlands explained to me how different military and police units basically divided up. Um, the various forms of economic activity amongst themselves and and operated protection rackets, whether it was petrol or rice or whatever. Each unit had their particular part of the economy and, and they made money out of it and they make money out of the government itself. So, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll insist, the, the military or police chiefs will insist... Um, on a on a particular Papuan political leader, like you know, a government, a local government leader of some sort, uh, take on certain members of their unit as their drivers, their their security, and so on, and paying for it. Uh, and the same, I suppose, with uh, the operations like the mine, Freeport Mine, you know, getting mm. money out of security, but they basically impose on 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 the mining company and so on. So the um, election in Indonesia, uh, was there any uh, sense that uh, the uh, violence, paid for violence, one would have to say, that went on after the election has something to do, will have any positive uh, effect on policy in West Papua, considering that the uh, elected president was actually being uh, targeted uh, in by the same forces that are actually um, oppressing West Papua directly. Mm. I'm, I'm I'm really not sure. I haven't. Um, no, there's I no movement. Been... You don't see any movement there. What in 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 Papua itself? Well, you know, it just seems to me that uh, they. Well, it's been pointed out that uh, the um, person. I know it sounds like a dipping into the past, but the person, yeah, oh. the person who yeah. ordered the shooting of the Bialabo Five, the Australian mm. uh, journalists, was uh, part of the supporting group uh, who backed. The opposition uh, candidate in the yeah yeah, yeah 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 now the, so that would give you and there are others of a similar ilk so it would give you the impression that these powerful entities that come from the military as it were were mm. backing the opposition 
the yeah. uh, candidate in the Indonesian elections. I don't think that's too. Yeah, there's 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 some significant anti-democratic um, forces within Indonesia, and and the military in particular doesn't um, still keep totally out of of politics. And we know that a lot of the senior government figures in recent years have had military careers and so on. Um, and also, I'd add to that um, some significant, I'd say, fairly extremist um, Islamic groups are joining with them to try to force particular... Um, um, agenda items. Agendas to to, to um, um, the uh, come to the fore in in, in Indonesia, uh, and and I think that violence is a symptom of those those groups, the military, and and those other groups in in Indonesian society wanting to use anti-democratic means in order to get their agenda up. What can, now that we have to come to the end of our conversation, and thank you very much for spending some time with us, can you give us some idea of how the international community or people here can be of support? or what, what What's going on in that sphere? Uh, I, I, well, one thing that is particularly pertinent for many countries, including Australia, is that we... We support, directly support Indonesian security forces um, through training yep. and, and uh, cooperation and providing uh, resources to both... Well, the guns bullets. and the bullets that do the shooting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we, we in Australia, for example, have trained... I think the latest figures we saw from about a year or so ago, we cooperate with Indonesian police to train almost 25,000 a year Indonesian police who then are increasingly becoming the biggest thugs and perpetrators of violence and abuse against people in West Papua. Um, We would like, we think people in Australia and other countries that provide that sort of support should be demanding that our respective governments uh, ask more questions and challenge that and not continue to provide that sort of training and resourcing and cooperation um, in military exercises, etc., without um, getting some um, accountability of that sort of violence. So that's one very definite thing that people can do. And it's just learning about the way in which we, in our respective countries, um, collaborate in the economic exploitation and marginalisation of the Papuan people. Because uh, it's, it's really deeply upsetting to me to see how marginalised Papuan mm. people have been in their own country in every respect. It's not just the violence, physical violence and yeah. abuse. It's just almost total economic, yeah. Yeah. social, cultural.
cultural Exclusion. marginalisation. Yeah, yeah well, it's, so a well, it's a well-worn path, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, you, but when you tell the story of West Papua to people in Australia, mm. they say, well, this is like the Aboriginal Regional people in Australia. Yeah, people. yeah. Exactly. All over again, you can see the numbers are declining. Yeah. Year it's, by it's year, the percentage of the population as more and more Indonesian migrants come yeah. in and take mm. over and exploit the land without any respect for the the country, um, the, the land, the forest, the traditions of the people. It's just the same story again and mm. again. The abuse, the contempt for people, the denigration, the humiliation, the racism is evident in the way uh, Indonesian security forces and um, migrants treat um, the people of West Papua. Mm. And, and becoming aware of that and demanding the, the, the practical ways in which our government support uh, that oppressive violence uh, is, is really important, I think, to, to shift things uh, and give uh, Papuan people some dignity and, and freedom to, to shape their own future. Thanks very much for talking to us. Yeah, thanks, Peter. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, we're going to go to a song by Michael Franti. Grass was greener years ago I swear it used to grow here But no more here Tell me why on this hill All the birds they used to come to fly here Come to die here And tell me why I need to know Sometimes I wish I didn't have to know Hello everybody, this is Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. You're here with Annie and Rebecca and we've been joined in the studio by Marcus Harrington. How are you, Marcus? Yeah, thanks Annie, good to be here. Yeah, and uh, what are you uh, up to today? What Uh, what, what are we going to do? Yeah, this morning on the line is Bernie Constable and Bernie's the General Secretary of the Shearers and Rural Workers Union. Welcome to the program, Bernie. G'day, Marcus. And g'day to all the people out there in Radio Land. Yeah. <laughs> How you battling? Yeah, thanks for joining us this morning, comrade. Um, so this uh, this year marks the 25th anniversary of the Shearers and Rural Workers Union. And uh, so, how and why was the union reformed back in 1994? Righto. Well, I'll give you a little. I'll go back a bit further, and I'll give you a bit of history. Good. Good. Um, and I'll I'll say with. Where I'm coming from, I'm a shearer yeah. and a fruit picker. As uh, oh, where do you, where do you live? Which part of the country? Uh, Ballarat. Oh yeah, cool. Okay. And actually, the union is actually based in Ballarat, and it's probably the only union that's based outside of a um, a capital city, I suppose. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, fitting given yeah the Ballarat's history of the Eureka Rebellion. It is plus the um, the history that lies in the um, the shearing industry. Yeah. Uh, in the un- in the union movement in the shearing industry, it goes back to um, 1886, 
and there was a meeting called of shearers because traditionally, well, shearers are seasonal. Yeah. That's the work they work. And they're they peace gave, workers too because, you know, it's per, per animal really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But um, what it is traditionally, different areas will shear at different times. They'll have their season. So what shearers traditionally have done, if they don't, if they don't a lot of, some shearers don't go away from home. But a lot of shearers, if they want to keep shearing, they've got to keep moving. So, so is it is it actually possible if you move around to have shearing all the year round? Well, not not, not quite. so much all the year. Yeah, because there's always going to be dead spots. Yeah, mm. and um, so anyway, traditionally shearers in Victoria would go up to the Riverina in New South Wales or further up um, do the hot runs where what they call the hot runners, they used to uh, shear, in, and they still do, in uh, Queensland and northern New South Wales during the uh, the hot period, like uh, January, February, March, because that was a time that they could muster the sheep because they'd uh, muster them around water because the uh, holdings were so big. Oh, yeah, that's clever. If you're looking at, um, say, 100,000 acres or, or more, um, it's very hard to muster the sheep to bring them in for shearers to shear. Yeah, that's so a lot of sheep. You muster it when it's dry, when the sheep have to come in for water. So anyway, shearers go up north and um, and travel around and shear from shed to shed. And um, the New South Wales uh, Graziers Association in the 18, in 1886 decided that they were going to reduce shearing weights because... There was uh, ample uh, labour to fulfil the amount of uh, jobs that were going. Mm. And that's, that's a theme that's been running with farmers or graziers um, for, you know, since it's been... Well, a hundred years. Well, well, no, it's, it's been going back even further than that. Oh, right. But um, whenever there was a surplus of labour, they would drive down wages and conditions. Yeah, mm. right. Even and, though and it didn't cost less to live, and it's pretty much the way it is now. And we'll get to that further on in the, um, the discussion. But shearers were, were notified that there was going to be reduced a reduction in the rate of shearing. So a group of blokes in Ballarat, well, actually from Creswick, and and in Ballarat, decided that it wasn't good enough, and they decided they they'd form a union. Now, this was significant because most unions in Australia were based around trade, whereas shearers were always regarded as a low-skilled job hmm. or no-skilled job. Oh, that's pretty rude, isn't it? Yeah, that is rude. So it was significant because this was the first group of men that weren't actually tradespeople to form a union. Hmm. And this happened in 1886 at the Ferns Hotel... Uh, in Sturt Street, Ballarat. Cool. W- William and, Guthrie uh, Spence, was it, Bernie? Beg your pardon? Was it uh, William Guthrie Spence, one of the founders of he, the union? He, he was asked to um, assist the formation of the union, and he went on to then become uh, the general secretary. Okay. But what happened, the union started in Ballarat, and the idea, because the blokes were seasonal and they travelled, they took the idea up in New South Wales, and all of a sudden mm. you had little centres starting their own unions. So then they took the step to amalgamate those um, those various little centres to form the Amalgamated Shearers Union, 
which become the Australasian Shearers Union, which then became the Australian Workers Union. Oh, really? That's yeah. interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So and then that, came... that's the history of it. Yeah. But then, so the Australian Workers Union got bigger and stronger and had more and more um, amalgamations with other unions, or well, took in other trades and other industries, till it became the mighty Australian Workers Union, according to them. <laughs> but there was nothing mighty about it except for the fact they were very, very big. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you recall back in the um, the 80s and the 90s, there was a push on by... Are we talking about the 1990s and 80s? Sorry, sorry, yes. We moved 100 years. This is a big jump forward. Yeah. There was um, a push on by the ACTU and the Labor Party to work about uh, gaining power of the unions so they decided the best way to do that is to reduce the amount of unions because there was yep, yep. Oh, well, nearly 100 unions. They decided they'd compress them all into 20 big unions. Super unions. There was a push to have 20 big unions. So all the different... That's how the CMFEU um, got going and the various other big unions that are now at the CPU and all those sort of things. Um, they got going because of this strategy from the ACTU and the Labor Party to form these enormous unions. But unfortunately, it didn't work for every industry. And because the shearing industry is so so widely spread... And specific. They decided that the, union, the shearing industry was too hard to service. Mm. Oh. So in the lead-up to these, um, these uh, big amalgamations, the AWU was going to uh, amalgamate with the Federated Iron Workers, or the FIMI, mm. And they were going to create this enormous union. Supposedly, the AWU had um, 170,000 members. And FIMI had 120,000. So oh, my goodness. 290,000 members in this union. Mm. And this is going back in the early uh, 19, uh, 1990 by that stage. And they were going to be the super union, but they didn't want shearers because they were too hard to service. Because if you had, say, a cement factory, you could go and and service 500 members. Yep. Mm-hmm. But if you go to a shearing shed, you might go to a shearing shed and there's three members, or you might drive 120 miles and see another four members, or you might go somewhere else and see 20 members. Yep. So it was too hard for them, and they decided it was going to be uh, too hard and too difficult, so they said, right, what we'll do is we'll just um, we'll issue tickets through the mail. We'll, we won't put any special organisers in the pastoral industry, and um, that will do. It's a bit rude. Now, in the meantime, the shearers um, in various states, Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, up into Queensland, were coming under pressure because of a, um, a dispute that had been pushed by the Farmers' Federations called the Wide Comb Dispute. Ah, oh, yes, yes. Now, traditionally, Victor, uh, Australians used a 67-millimetre comb to shear the sheep. The comb sits on a handpiece. Yep. The comb is what you put push through the wool along the sheep's skin, and you have a, a thing called a cutter that goes across the top and cuts the wool as it goes through the comb. And it peels That's how you off. you harvest the wool off. Yeah. And a, a skilled man will take off the, the fleece of a sheep in one piece far in the, the belly wool. Yeah. So anyway, in, that, that suited 
Australia fine because we have we used to have predominantly merino sheep, which were bred for the wool. And the, the wool on a merino sheep grows denser, and um, there's a lot, lot more on it because of the, the wrinkles on the skin and everything than a crossbred that is bred predominantly for meat. Because a meat sheep has a, a smooth skin. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to push a cone through. In New Zealand, they have wide combs, which are up to 100 millimetres rather than a 67 millimetre comb and um, Australians used the wide comb as well but in the 1920s the farmers decided that a wide comb was chopping away too much wool uh, when I say chopping away because the sheep's uh, body is, is rounded if you use a wide comb there's always going to be a bit of the comb sitting off the skin Mm-hmm. And so you're cutting the length of the wool down. And if you're breeding a sheep for the wool on its back, you don't want the, the wool cut down. So they thought, well, the farmers thought that if you use a, a, a narrower comb, you're going to have less wool that's cut in half or cut in quarter. Yeah, yeah, they, they saw it as being a productivity advance. Does yeah. that mean that uh, they didn't sit down with the shearers and have a chat about what their concerns were? Farmers did in the 20s, they banned the wide, comb, uh, the wide comb from Australia, but they kept using it in New Zealand because they didn't, didn't matter if you cut the wool up over there because it was inferior wool and breeding the sheep for, for meat. So that, that went very well for 60 years. Um, and then the farmers decided that, getting back to the alternative workforce to create the surplus in the industry and bring down wages and conditions, they would try and encourage New Zealand shearers to come to Australia oh, right. to create a surplus. Mm-hmm. But those Kiwis wouldn't come over here because we had a narrow comb and they would have to go back from, say, a or a 90mm comb back to a 67mm comb, which means every time you push a handpiece in a blow, you take that little less wool off. So it's, more, it's harder work. Yep, more right. work. Yep. So the Kiwis didn't want to come over here, so then the farmers, under a a grub named Ian McLaughlin, who was the National Farmers Federation president. And he's now in charge of uh, an industry. Mm. Yeah, yeah, go on. They decided they'd um, force a wide comb into the Australian industry again so the Kiwis would then come, and that's what they did. And that led to some ugly scenes, Bernie, didn't it, in uh, shearing sheds around the country? Well, a lot of people were pretty upset about it because... The Farmers Federation, as it turns out, were pumping in money into shearer training in New Zealand oh, hmm. to actually build up the numbers, which meant there was a surplus of shearers in New Zealand. They would have to come to Australia to work because they were told all this money is out there to be made. And the rate per hundred, in, as you get paid per sheep, the rate per hundred in Australia was a lot higher than in New Zealand because the unions were, were pretty weak over there. So um, all these shearers come flooding into Australia. And at the, at the turn of um, the 1990s, there'd been an enormous wool boom mm. and they, they went from went up to about 110 million sheep in Australia and then the price of wool dropped. Of course. And the, far, the farmers bought in um, a reserve price for the wool so they, they were buying in all the wool it wasn't reaching the reserve, and they had enormous stockpiles. No one could sell it. The Japanese 
was what was happening. They were the primary um, buyers of Australian wool then, and um, they just stopped buying for a while to let the wool pile build. <laughs> build up mm. They knew they were going to take wool for for a song. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, bit them suddenly, on the bum. Suddenly, all the sheep, the farmers were shooting sheep. Oh, because they were oh just, my goodness! Yeah. Oh so my the, goodness. Um, the, the, so, so the sheep, sheep have got a worse yeah. trot than Australian workers. Well, no, I'd say shearers have probably got worse trot than the sheep. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, they they shot an enormous amounts of sheep, and so suddenly you've got a huge amount of shearers that, that are extra. And in the early nineties, it was estimated that fifty percent of all sheep in Australia were being shorn by New Zealand workers. So, um, um, so, so when these people talk about you know working in Australian economic interest, workers' interests, people should investigate this a bit more, shouldn't they? Absolutely. So anyway, I'll continue on with the saga. <laughs> the um, there's this huge amount of, of surplus workers, so all of a sudden wages and conditions are coming down, and because we were so much higher in Australia than we were in New Zealand, New Zealand shearers didn't mind cutting rates a bit. Yeah, yeah. So we, we worked out the only way we were going to actually stop this was to actually um, unionise them. Sort of work permit system, because at that stage, and still it still happens, New Zealanders don't need any form of work permit to come to Australia and work. So we thought if we had a sort of a system where you could regulate the amount of workers coming in, when there's a shortage, yeah, bring them in. When there's not a shortage, well, just slow the stream up a bit. So we went to Canberra and sat on the lawns of Parliament between 1992 and 1993. Every time the Parliament sat, there was a group of shearers sat and camped on the lawns of Parliament. So they went on for about 18 months. And from that, we could see that the AWU didn't want us there because we were embarrassing the Labor Party who was in government at the time. And um, they did everything they could to stop us. We realised that the writing on the wall was... On there for the shearing industry being unionised. So what we did is we went out and the networks that we had developed, we actually decided the only way we are going to beat the AWU is actually to divorce them and uh, start our own union. And clearly, and Bernie, the AWU and the, the ALP, did they f- clearly forgot their roots because it was out of the shearers' strike in 1891 that the ALP was formed. Right under the tree of knowledge in Bar Court in Queensland. And that uh, is correct. a struggle against contract labour and 130-odd years later, we're still yeah. fighting the same battle. We're still fighting the same battle. So that's how the Shearers and Rural Workers Union came to be formed. And it's interesting that the union, the RWU traces roots back to the Shearers Union that formed at Burns Hotel in Sturr Street in Ballarat in 1886. In 1994, we started the uh, Shearers and Rural Workers Union at... Um, the Ballarat Trades Hall, which was 200 yards from where Burns Hotel had been, so mm-hmm. it was quite significant. Yeah. We have to we have to wind up because uh, we only have a limited amount of time on the radio. But uh, right, this hey. has been a very interesting conversation. Yeah. Thank you very much, Bernie, for spending yeah. some time with us. Well, that that goes shows you a bit of history, anyway. Yeah, thanks very much. We will have so to we'll get back get to you. To, talk about what's going on now. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, um, maybe, we'll, we'll, maybe we've got time for one quick, yeah. one last quick question. Yeah, yeah. one yeah. last. Yeah, Bernie, question. we just got a quick question. In previous yeah. times, the shearers 
they worked off a rate that each sheep was worth a pot of beer and a box of matches. How does that compare in the current situation of time? Well, that, that was the, the formula they sort of, uh, that, shearers decided, that uh, shearers knew happened um, back in, right up until the, uh, the 70s. Now a pot of beer is worth about $5 something. And a packet of matches is sixty odd cents if you could buy one over a bar. That's five sixty, and we're currently getting three dollars twenty a sheep. <gasps> so it's fallen way behind. Mm. Oh, so we'll, we'll sheep, yeah, we'll have to catch up with you about this. Genetically bred to be bigger, and yeah. they're cutting more wool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. we, yeah, productivity is going up, but we're getting mm. rewarded less. Yeah, sounds familiar across here, right across yeah. industries in Australia. So yeah, the yeah. struggle continues. Yeah. 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 Thanks for talking. Thanks, we'll, Bernie. We'll come back to you on yeah, this. Yeah, okay. Thanks, Bernie. Good on you. Hi. Hi. We're from Braver College, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when the aphorism, what goes up must come down, was proven in one case and disproved in another. First proven. Poor, caring employers were hit Thursday with a massive increase in pay for the lowest of low-paid workers, a crippling 56 cents an hour, which the true blue Aussie Chamber of Profits sputtered would cost jobs, was in excess of inflation, and our old favourite Innes Wilcost of the true blue Aussie Industry Profits Group said the only slight, ever so slight relief is it could have been worse. They could have listened to the evil unions and awarded the lowest of low paid a living wage. And imagine how many jobs that would cost. What hurt to the caring employers whose one desire in life is to provide jobs for the ingrates who keep making outrageous claims that lead to caring employers being hit with this crippling 56 cents an hour increase. Why, that's almost a cent a minute. But... How does it prove the must-come-down bit? Well, thankfully, just as this attack on the ability of the caring business class to employ the ingrates will come in, the second cut in penalty rates for the lowest of low paid will simultaneously begin, at least some small relief for the besieged good, good bosses, particularly if, hopefully, the cut will exceed the 56 cents, making the fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like a decision even more irresponsible. And not only proving the aphorism, but showing what goes up must come down and then some. And to think Fair Work Troubler was he no longer made this outrageously pro-worker, pro-evil union's decision, despite the fact that in order to restore balance to the bench, the past 20 appointments have come from the caring employers. And good news, there are at least eight vacancies imminent. More chance for the government and new Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Christian Potom, to restore the balance even further. Clearly, he understands that reality of which the sadly departed former great and beloved big supremo nuclear hawk himself made us aware that caring employers and lazy avaricious workers have common symbiotic interests which has been spotlighted since the caring business class hayseed and sheepshit party's re-election. Indeed, in an interview with longtime socialist activist Dave Kerrin on City Limits, I concluded by commenting that the government's relentless campaign to 
wrest all that lovely, lovely super money away from evil unions and workers and hand it to its mates, the respectable bankers and good responsible financial institutions would accelerate. So surprise, surprise, two days later, True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, P1 Kicker, Retail Funds, Consumer Groups versus Unions, then big headline, Push to Curb Industry Superpower. Retail funds pushing the government to change the rules. That slogan sounds familiar. Changes, quote, changes that would erode the advantages enjoyed by union-influenced industry funds. Unfair advantages like not ripping off and believing the workers whose money it is should get that money. But we've known for years as the caring business class and their caring business class puppets, as so, sorry, parliamentarians tell us, industrial relations is weighted too much toward the evil unions, that it must be brought back to the sensible centre. And my word, the caring employers are certainly working on that post-haste. They're certainly changing the rules, as the unions called for. Predictions the evil construction unions will now receive record penalties costing billions as numerous pending cases hit the jackboots commission, many to do with costly crippling demands like safety, as simultaneously massive increases in fines come into effect, 210000 per charge for evil unions, 42 grand per individual, and there are 800 and 17 alleged contraventions about to hit the courts, while Christian says he will take a hard line on construction unions. So obviously those 210 and 42 grand penalties are not hard line. The 817 alleged contraventions, not nearly enough. Caring employers also say they want changes to make the fair work true blue was he no longer work choices just looks like it con mission more efficient. Perhaps an unconscious slap at themselves seeing they have provided the past 20 appointments. But to show how removed from reality those ivory tower academics can be, this academic from RMIT says the government has no mandate to attack unions, my brackets even more, because reviewing all this was not announced. Christian put him in his place. There was no need to announce it. Everyone knows we hate evil unions. Everyone, well, every responsible law-abiding everyone, hates evil unions. But to show how Christian Christian is, he said he would consult with evil unions in good faith over changes he plans to make industrial relations more efficient, presumably more hardline efficient. And it shows how unions and workers are not responsible law-abiding everyone's. The caring employers, through their sundry chambers of profits, have welcomed Christian's in good faith approach, the changes he will make, while the evil unions... Not a sound, not a word, not a thank you, Christian, for acting in good faith. The big hope for evil unions and workers out of all this is that new Socialist Party Supremo Albo, as they call him, Anthony Albin Uzi, agrees with Nuclear Hawk. Unions and businesses have common interests in a strong economy, he mused, which is certainly getting off to a promising start. That should cheer up the unions no end. That's the proven... But the disproved, what goes up won't come down. We know that we're all paying an ever-inflating fortune for our gas, and the energy companies keep telling us they'd just love to charge us less 
but well the world price for liquefied natural gas is so high and we have to pay the highest common denominator world price even though the gas is produced on our doorstep but we could pay less if only state governments would open up the gas they have locked up on specious grounds like it would destroy the environment when they know the environment should never come between a resource company and a bag of lovely lovely money the week that was put to them that they should have more gas for domestic use if they stopped exporting it but they explained that bit about the high high world price and all that well when it went up our bills went up but now for the past several months the world price has decreased gone down so the true Aussie competition and consumer commissioner suggested that just maybe if what went up went up then what comes down should come down so to speak but the great energy behemoths who would love nothing more than to reduce domestic prices say that is too simplistic that the cost of domestic gas supply is so high so what went up can't come down the energy behemoths must be so upset it might seem logical to us but all that shows once again that we just can't comprehend the intricacies of the delicate flower that is the economy on another positive note, just when we thought we'd lost Parliament's favourite, lover of train killing and a bit of slaughter and destruction, Jim Morlam, tossed into an unwinnable number four on the caring business class and hayseed and sheepshit ticket, looks like he's back with another favourite, Arthur Sins of Dunnas, being sent off to Washington as ambassador and Jim back in the Senate to advocate a bit of train-killing slaughter accompanied by his deep analysis and advice on how to massacre the bad guys. Thanks for, his, thanks for his loyalty in urging people to ignore the ticket and vote for him. And when some commentator suggested that might be seen to be a, a touch disloyal, Jim said that was a slight on his character and reputation, which might explain why he likes a bit of slaughter or whoever or whoever resorted to slaughter. And just when we thought we'd lost Karangamite casually, Sarah Hender soon gone, she's just as soon not gone. She's back with another senator being packed off to New York as ambassador to the UN of the US of the UN of the world. What luck for Jim and Sarah. Thank goodness it's not a socialist government so we won't hear screams and anger at jobs for the girls and boys, at favouritism, at being the puppets of evil union bosses. Just hope Arthur doesn't get lost on his way to Washington, that he's recovered the memory or his memory because we were all so concerned about his mind when he appeared at that corruption inquiry over events when he was a caring business class party treasurer and he couldn't for the life of him remember where all this money had come from and who stuffed it in the paper bags or any other details about the matters being investigated. Poor Arthur's memory was in tatters. We can but hope it goes to script because a number of other good caring business class party apparatchiks have also put up their hands for the vacancies. On vacant, the media keeps referring to the Honourable Senators Kim Il-Carr and Doug Commies Wrong as from the left, meaning we can but imagine what the right must be like. Looking at the Honourable Kim Il and his working class ever-expanding three-piece suit, we can be certain one thing, not left, thing 
not left fingers anything, any food on his well-stacked plate over the years, but no doubt he is forced to dine at the upmarket restaurants to continue his lifelong commitment to the socialist cause. And just look at all he's achieved during all those decades on the plus seats. Finally, there's a positive in everything, like the increasing number of deaths arising from the flu. Positive, I hear? Well, yes. Headline, Capitalist Review Thursday, Funeral Shares Up on Rising Flu Deaths. <laughs> ah, compassion. They're rubbing their hands. Just hope they washed them first. Good morning. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, Rebecca and Marcus and we're up to the last leg of the program this morning and uh, that was a really interesting interview. Yeah, that was good, uh, Bernie Constable. We had on, if you missed the interview, yeah, listen to it on podcasts and Bernie's the uh, General Secretary of the Shearers and Rural Workers Union but not only the leader of a union, he still actively works in the field. I think that's a pretty unique position he holds. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. Um, we were just talking about the suits, uh, and now we're going to move on to uh, Don Sutherland because I had a conversation with him about uh, the suits, and this is about uh, after the election. All revolutions have a parliamentary or electoral dimension to them. So if you go back to, for example... Uh, 1917, all through 1917, the all of the parties, including the Bolsheviks, were waging a very serious battle around winning votes for parliamentary purposes. All right? That was both to get people elected and also to win uh, the votes on the floor of their parliament. And they were critical events in terms of making the bigger revolution happened right. to, to so, garner support well and also to educate people about why what the inadequacies of the Duma as it stood at the time or the parliament as it stood at the time uh, and needed needed a deeper form of democracy right yes okay but also in order having a having a Duma in itself was a step forward out of uh, absolute monarchy right Yes, well, the, the Duma was, had been existed for about 100 years or 80-odd years at that mm. point and um, was, uh, was hand-in-glove with, with, um, with, with the monarchy in order, in order with the Tsar yeah. and Tsarism in order to dominate the majority of the population. That's right. Um, yeah. It was almost so, like a bit so, of a, a, a steam valve release. So it's not either or, really. It's really a question of how you use the parliamentary and electoral process in tandem with the mass movement type process. Yep. And that's what we lost sight of in Change the Rules, because we went totally electoral. Take, for example, uh, in a, in a you know, bit longer, you could cite all the examples, is that with the annual wage review, um, the best they could do to mobilise people was 60-odd people in front of in front of the Fair Work Commission a couple of days before the, before the election. And most of them were full-time employees from the comms departments in various unions. They weren't workers organised off the job. 
So reshape that and say, think 12 months from now. What if we can get 6,000 people there? Because it's about something real for real yeah. people. In a political mobilisation that demands that the Fair Work Commission, in effect, uh, without any change to the law, finds a way to give a positive decision and then uses the various wordsmith to justify it within the current law. Hmm. That, that's what we have done in the past. Now, you could run that. You could start that campaign from the announcement of this year's decision, right? You could start. You could announce that campaign, say next year we will be doing this, and you could shape it so that it is gendered, so that the prime one of the primary demands is to close the gap, right? Close the gender gap, and you could orientate it so that you that it makes sense, and then you for the next twelve months you spend all that time organising a big number of low-paid workers to be able to participate in that mobilisation and join their union. So you, you use it as a union density campaign and so on. And then you marry that against more strategic enterprise bargaining efforts. If we look right now, the Transport Workers Union is about to do a pattern bargaining That's style. That's right. I was going to ask you about that. That is a step in the right direction, but are they really going to build... No, well, see, what the TWU are expecting to do is they're saying it's not pattern bargaining. What they've done is uh, got the EBAs in a variety of places to uh, happen at the same time. Mm. And that allows them to have uh, the uh, full force of any industrial action across the board. Now, uh, just by the way, that's exactly how the AMWU conducted its enterprise bargaining when it was first brought in until about, I'd say, around 2007, we, the union stopped doing that or lost the capacity to do that. Why was that? Because they started to stagger the EBA? Uh, the employers, for, uh, employers were getting the upper hand and were therefore able to break up the commonality of expiry dates. Yes, right. So our strategy in the AMWU from when I went back into the union in 1999, but, you know, it was just drilled into every organiser and delegate is to aim for common expiry dates. And so basically what we're talking about is this constant push and pull and that uh, never, never the uh, does the, uh, uh, the moneyed class ever have the an altruistic bone in its body, effectively. Everything they do in bargaining is about profitability. Yes. Not the gross profit. Profitability relative to their investment. Our so movement things, doesn't understand that. And also the thing about power, how power actually works. Yes, the, the power to withdraw capital or mm. relocate it. Uh, the power not to invest it. And what you see, when workers go into bargaining... A lot of them know exactly what the what the state of play is in their with their employer. So, you, if you're a union official and you go into bargaining, and you ignore what the workers themselves are saying about where the employer is up to, then you're stupid because they know a lot about it. Their understanding and sophistication about the power of the employer is better than most union officials because they know what the boss will do. The boss will withdraw capital. The boss will relocate. The boss is not really owned by the most obvious employer. It's owned by another employer on top of them. Mm. All of those sorts of things. 
Now there's deeper education that has to be done all the time about that. See, um, the we didn't talk a bit about what the employers are up to. What do you and, think uh, they are up to? Well, already they have a lot of claims for Morrison to change the rules further in their favour. They put it was announced yesterday in the Financial Review. I didn't cover that. What What did they say? What did they want? Uh, the specific things are legi- pushed straight ahead with the legislation to define the casual, so that it's the boss who defines whether someone is casual or not. That becomes the law. In other words, in other words, the struggle that's going on in the Fair Work Commission type hearings that come from disputes over the definition of a casual will no longer be possible because the statute law would say that the boss is the one who has the power to say whether someone is or is not a casual. So like it's like we're going back to the 18th century. Uh, yes, yes, yes. And in other words, each... Yes, that, it, it, I, I would say we've got a 21st century application of the employment arrangements that dominated when unions were first created. Yes, that's right. That's what it feels like. Yes. With this overlay of quite uh, draconian uh, artificial intelligence capacity and uh, uh, police and uh, armed forces increased powers. Well, well, remember what I said about the rate of exploitation in mining. Uh, in In all new mining sites and in most established ones, the rate of change to uh, remotely driven trucks yes. is huge, right? So the Adani mine will ha- only have remotely driven trucks. Now, those trucks will still break down and have to be repaired and maintained, right? They can't do that. The trucks can't do it themselves, and there's no robots that can do that. Now, what that means is that within a very short space of time, because in the total production process, the ratio of fixed capital to uh, total wages will rise and that will drive down the rate of profit. The only way the bosses can solve that problem is by increasing the rate of exploitation even further. So the tendency, when I talked about the rate of exploitation before, uh, in the yeah, mining yeah, yeah, being so high. That's necessary to counteract the tendency associated with uh, uh, driverless trucks to push the tra- rate of profit down. It's sort of interesting to me because I, cal- I mean, it'd be interesting to note if uh, nobody went to Queensland uh, as a tourist, how much employment and uh, Money going would be taken out of that economy in comparison to the mining industry. Yeah, you know what? There used to be research centres that, that the told you this sort of that, thing. That would do that. There's a thing called the Transnational Cooperative, and then the AMWU's National Research Centre used to do that sort of thing, right? Comparing employment patterns in tourism with mining and manufacturing. There's no one in the labour movement who does that anymore. So you might go to a couple of the so-called Labour Party think tanks like Per Capita and so on. Uh, They don't do that sort of work. 
They don't do working class type research. They do what I think it's fair to say, uh, labourist bubble research. This is not taking away from the work that they do. It's really just how the whole of society has been overtaken by this world view, which is so divorced from the actual practicalities of existence. Yeah, but we've got to talk about how the dominant ideology in the in the union movement, in the labour movement, is labourism, and that perpetuates that. Right. So there is there is a choice for tens of thousands of individuals about whether they want that to continue or not. Define labourism. Well, labourism has four pillars. Firstly, it says that running the economy and government should be left to the politicians and is not the business of ordinary working people. That's the first thing, what you might call parliamentarism. The second thing is careerism. And that is that the purpose of the Labor Party, of participating in the Labor Party, is in order to demonstrate or achieve your own career trajectory in politics. The third dimension, which is associated with that, is the cult of personality and the cult of top leaders. Yeah, boring. Thing. Yeah. So you watch and you see this in the reaction to Hawke's death, is that right across even the left of the left, there is this idolatry. I know, it's weird. Of an individual. Labourism is more into the cult of personality and its cultivation mm. than Stalinism and Maoism. <laughs> you can quote me on that. <laughs> Go on. Yeah, what's it? And there's one more. Well, the fourth one is that system's not the problem. There's no, no, there's no contradictions in the system. They can all be managed. And that therefore, we, we, it is, you know, we have, we need to have a supportive relationship with business at the same time as workers. There is no endemic conflict. It's really just a matter of too much greed here and there. It's like the their version of the rotten apple. So translate that. Exploiting workers is okay as long as it doesn't go too far. Yeah. Exploiting nature is okay mm. as long as it goes doesn't go too far. So... It accepts exploitation as the primary relationship between human beings. Yep. Okay. And that's labourism. Yep. But I feel like I've been yeah, terrorised by it all my life. Very different to socialism. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Labourism essentially wants to reproduce the system and to be the outlet valve or rescue channel when the system cannot be rescued by the people who believe in it the most. Santa Concha, what the hell is a completo anyway? It's a Chilean hot dog, mate. What happens when lots of people get together and eat completos? It becomes a completada bailable. If you really want to experience a completada bailable and support our 3CR community, come to our fundraiser, Saturday 8th of June at Moreland City Band Room, 16 Cross Street, East Brunswick, at 6pm. Come and check your culo with DJ Twin and DJ Otorongo and live music by Abe Danovitz, Little Chili and their mates. The Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition is holding a free conference on the 10th of July at the Greek Orthodox Church, 23-29 Victoria Street, Coburg. 
The conference will take a look at whether the Aussie fair go still matters, ask why there's a crisis of trust in politicians and institutions, and question why public welfare services are increasingly private and costly. We'll also consider what action we can take to build the future we want. Limited places are available and bookings before the 10th of June are essential. Email eventsfgfpvictoria at gmail.com or call 0477-236-880. Fair go for Pensioners Coalition. Free conference, 10th of July in Coburg. A 3CR supporter. And that's the end of Solidarity Breakfast this morning. And uh, I'll have to uh, go through the sorts of things that happened this morning. Yeah. Uh, what did we do first up? Oh, we talked about... Uh, uh, Rob Watts. Yeah, Rob Watts and uh, the deserving poor yeah. or, and the undeserving poor. Mm. Uh, all that stuff, that all these crocodile tears that people have been shedding over the homelessness of this poor person and... Uh, who's yeah. been murdered, yeah. uh, talking about social housing and forgetting that uh, it's actually public housing that people should be talking about. Uh, that This is uh, the deserving and the undeserving poor. Uh, moving on to... we. Uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to mention I've been reading... Uh, yeah, Virginia Fairbanks. U- Eubank. Sorry, Eubanks. <laughs> no, that's right. Virginia it's a great name. Eubank. U- it's yes. like a U. What What are those uh, uh, um, submarines that um, the uh, Germans used to have? The U boats. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, her book on called uh, um, Automating Inequality. Yeah. yeah, and it's very very interesting. I I know we played. Um, yeah, some of her. Uh, talk when she came to Melbourne but yeah it's so interesting to uh, read about the history of the well this is she talks specifically about the US um, but oh, the but coming the, coming to Australian uh, cities yes near you, near you. yes uh, so she talks also historically about the poor houses and then how now what she calls the digital poor house and the transition from one to the other. And I think that's kind of relevant um, to what Rob Watts was talking about because it was around, well, before the the Great Depression as well. And, um, yeah, she gives examples, uh, current examples, of how some of these automating tools that government are using is just, yeah, and I mean, we've talked about them here over the last few weeks about the robo-debt and, uh, you know, uh, the way that single parents are um, having to comply with the... What's, unreasonable complaints. Yeah, uh, un- unreasonable. Yeah. With all these compliances yeah. that are actually uh, designed to humiliate people yeah. and it's not actually for any proper purpose. It's just about humiliating people. It's the same thing with... Uh, the cashless card, yes. which is just tying people to uh, big supermarkets and giving them absolutely no control over their uh, personal lives. And the only reason why you do that is because you're an authoritarian. And the thing about it is is that uh, the, the ordinary p- population of, of Australia, especially the more well-heeled, need to pull get their shit together because averting your eyes isn't going to do it, isn't going to cut it. Yeah. Um, we're going to, and we went on to talk to the uh, Shearer's uh, Union Secretary, 
which is, and as you said, uh, Marcus, he probably is the only secretary of a union that actually still engages in the tasks that um, uh, his members are involved in, and that's shearing sheep. Uh, this is the week that was, followed by a little bit of a conversation with Don Sutherland. Uh, don't forget what laborism is. Yeah. <laughs> what we we also heard uh, a little bit from Peter Arndt, who's, um, oh, yes. yeah, about West Papua yes. in there. Yeah. And, uh, so that's, that's a pretty... A lot of things yeah, to pretty digest. Good, pretty good cake <laughs> for breakfast this morning. Yes. What are we going to go out with? Uh, it's called 2024 by Odd Socks. And don't forget the Radiothon. Yes, coming up on June 15th, our Radiothon show. Listen to Facebook when I told you all that I had a timeline. Cracking the wind, the shit in my eyes, the size of my limelight. 2024, 2024, my name had been lats. It did not happen, twisting the facts, man, what's in the heist? Walking up in that building, got that funny type of feeling. It's like puckalize on me because anxiety is killer, killer. What can I say to him? Some words in my mouth. And if you go question my money and status, no longer yeah, a question, yeah, I'm punching yeah, you yeah. out. Punching you out as a step in this place, I'm proving the point like a teacher today. I'ma just blow up and get in your face, don't eat humble pie with your gorging on steak. I got one goal, I can talk at six points, cause I got the upper hand now. Go to reunion, my status seducer, and then your girlfriend go down. Cause who you know can spit a verse like this, or make it for the real when a curse like this. Mind listen to the chatter, motherfucker, you don't matter when a page is stacked, skirt like this. We you too hot for the builder, ayy. Kids getting down to the feeling, ayy. Rappers are fishing the barrel, we got machine. Guns are easy, we kill them, ayy, ayy. 50s, I want them in bands, want them in tents, and I want them in bills, cause I'm gonna throw them around. Not making a living, not making a killing, but surely I'm making a sound. I'ma pull my soul up in the dirt, take my feet up off the ground. If you didn't know my name before, then fucking surely you would know me now. That's how I question my sanity. The homies around it, it's not factuality. Post for the pictures of vanity, fallacy, pseudo-psychoanalytic mentality.
Micro brother on his phone's eagle covering his home to bend him down. We say, oh, 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 bend him down. Sad rivers of tears to hundred years in the river of fear. Bend him down. They took him out of point blank range in his home with his small young son. Shot him dead in his macro bed with a pump action 12 gauge shotgun. Fatherless child, even wife, a black fugitive on the run. On the run, two centuries from oppression's loaded gun. Did you enjoy listening to that podcast? Here at 3CR, we're a community radio station, and you're part of that. Right now is Radiothon when we ask our community to pitch in with a few dollars that can help keep media in the hands of our community. This year, we need to raise $250,000 to keep the station on air. Any amount that you can afford makes a big difference. And it's really easy to donate. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your support is greatly appreciated and helps us power radical podcasts for yet another year. Thanks, as always, for listening.